Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. And thank you to all my listeners around the globe who are listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope. I thank each one of you in over 120 countries and am so, am so glad that we can bring so many awesome guests to you who have incredible stories of when they felt hopeless and not able to go on or had devastating experiences in many different areas, whether it would be financial or physical or abusive or making a decision any any number of things where they felt hopeless and yet they were able to grab onto what was sometimes only a thread of hope and turn their lives around and be able to share their stories. And so I thank my guests and my listeners. With me today, I have somebody who was in a position like that and she too is going to share her story. She's coming to us today from Ireland and her name is Belinda Bennett's. Belinda is a passionate author and inspirational coach. She really wants to help others find their inner me, their inner self, and she has taken her past and developed a program to do just that, to help people and to help them to live a happier, more fulfilling life. So before I talk about what happened with Belinda, let's welcome her. Hi, Belinda. Hi, Carol. It's great to be here with you, you know, chatting to you tonight um, and be on this show. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I'm excited to hear what you're going to share with us. Mm. And I realize that there were some really low times in your life when you did feel hopeless. Very often, though, looking back, the things that happened in our childhood do affect us later. And those are the things that we need to sort through. And I believe that was your case where way early in your journey, of life that you experienced things which made you question a lot of things about your life in general. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. So tell us about that journey and about especially the journey of your pain. Well, for me, it really started when I was about four or five years old. That's when my clearest, my clear memories are of, you know, becoming aware of pain in me and those thinking patterns starting. And there there were two things for me at that stage. One was I was actually raised from birth by a full-time nanny. And when I was four years old, my nanny, um, she left and she went to work for a different family. And at, so I, I went immediately into feelings of abandonment. Uh. And then, yeah, which was really huge. 
And then at the same time, my sister was born, who I'm actually really close to, but she didn't have a full-time nanny. And she was cared for by my mum. And, you know, observing this as a, a very young child, I found that was really hurtful. And it really caused me to go inside myself and um, start to experience pain and also to start thinking things like, what's wrong with me and why am I not good enough? Why am I not loved? Did you feel loved by your nanny? I did. But then she abandoned you. She abandoned me. At that point, you know, I also became aware that I, I wasn't feeling love from my mum. And I suppose initially, you know, because I was receiving that from my nanny, I possibly just didn't look for it, you know, because she was full time. Um, and so I started to, to question, you know, what's going on with my mum? You know, why doesn't she love me as much as she loves my sister? And there were distinct things that happened you know, that to give that credibility for me, there was, I always felt like I was shouted at more, you know, it was back in the days when smacking was okay. So there was the smacking as well, <laughs> you know, and I felt like my mum and my sister were kind of together and they were really close. And then there was me on the outside. And then I was sent to school and that was very difficult for me as well because um, I had a headmaster who was quite abusive, not, not like, constantly but when I was I just started there and I was only six years old Mm. so that was huge as well so it kind of compounded you know a pattern that had started a couple of years uh, previously really from then it, it kind of snowballed at the age of 12 I developed anorexia and that was at the same time as my father was diagnosed with cancer. I love my father very, very much. And he passed away when I was 13. No, did the anorexia start at the time that your father was diagnosed? Yeah, do you correlate the two? I definitely think there was a correlation. I was also being bullied at school. I changed schools by that time. Um, and I was being bullied. So there was also that factor coming in. And, okay. you know, yeah, anorexia for me was a real call, a cry for help, like a big cry for help. I was, you know, being bullied at school and then the person that I loved at home was was ill and we didn't talk about it a lot oh. in the family. We didn't talk about the fact that he was going to possibly going to pass away. Um, so I had all that going on inside my head and I was trying to make sense of it and at the same time, you know, starving myself as well. That was, it was huge. I'm just wondering if I can stop you here because anorexia is such a huge subject and I think that we should maybe talk a little bit about this. Or have you figured out, and I don't know if would, this would apply just to you or to people in general, why does one become anorexic? I know that there are many different reasons, but when it's involved around emotion such as yours, yours is here, can you expound a little bit on that? What anorexia did was it gave me a sense of control. I was really lost. And it's only, you know, it's only in hindsight that I've been able to understand that. Obviously, mm. at the time, I, I didn't realize that that was what I was doing. But as I've got older and, you know, kind of understand myself better, I know that's largely what it was. Because I was really lost in negative thinking patterns. I was lost in pain and I was lost in fear. And what anorexia did for me was it gave me something tangible. You know, I had physical hunger pains and Uh. I had control. And it's it's actually interesting because it's something that I've just realized chatting to you about it now is that very young children 
you know, often that's one thing that they, they'll look for things that they can con- control. Good point. Yes. You know, I suddenly realized that because I suppose I've, I've watched my own daughter, you know, who'll kind of refuse to eat her food. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, so for me, that was, you know, I, I remember I used to welcome those hunger pains because it would take me out of myself and I would focus on them instead of focusing on the pain and the, the fear inside me. Now, how did your mother respond, eating or, you know, losing all this weight? Or did you, did you feel that she cared enough? No, I didn't. I, you know, I was very good at disguising it. I used to, I remember I used to adjust my clothes myself <coughs> and always make sure that I wore jumpers. And I was really good at uh, pretending to take large servings. And I would kind of, you know, just wait until everyone left the room and then throw it away and little things like that so for a long period I was actually able to hide it very well now you're trying to hide this and yet you're Mm. yet you're using it to also hide your pain and you would you would think to gain attention to your pain so why would you want to hide it if you want someone to realize there's something really wrong here well again that came down to fear so I think at some level, it was a cry for help at one level. But at another level, it was something that I had that gave me control, mm. if that makes sense. A little bit, yes. I just, yeah. I, you know, because everybody's so different. I understand yes, that. I know. And, 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 um, but this is, it, it still is a problem among especially young girls, uh, preteens mm. and teens, correct? It is, absolutely. And I, do you know, I... I really think it's just that you get so lost in your own thinking that there's part of you that's crying for help. There's part of you that's scared to ask for help. Mm. I mean, for me as a young child, those initial beliefs that I set up was that I wasn't good enough and um, there was something wrong with me. In a way, I wanted to hide it because otherwise I I would just be proving those beliefs, you know, that there's something wrong with me. Mm If that makes sense. I think, you know, you can get really your, your perceptions and your actions and things, they can get really distorted. That, that's a good point. Anorexia being, being one of those things that you felt that you were then able to control your situation. Your father had just died and yes. you were not feeling the love from your mother and all the issues that you were going through. So what happened next? Well, next I turned to alcohol. So things literally went from bad to worse. Developed alcohol dependence, alcohol addiction. And that's, that was, those were terrible years. That took me right up until I immigrated. I, I got married when I was very young and immigrated from Zimbabwe where I was born to New Zealand uh, with my now ex-husband. I actually drank right the way through until the age of 23 and I, I reached such a a low point of depression and the alcoholism as well that I tried to end my life. And that, that moment there was, was pivotal in that that was a huge wake-up call for me because obviously, you know, I didn't succeed and I woke up in hospital with a psychiatric team in the room. First of all, my initial reaction was like, oh, no, I failed, you know. Mm. I, I did. Yeah, and that was, that was enormous and I had to kind of go through all that. Did you not feel love when you were married? Or did you get married possibly to get the love that you were looking for and then was disappointed that it wasn't there? Like what was, yeah. how did that play into your... I got married for love and you know, I was searching for love. 
I was 21 when I got married. But unfortunately, at the same time, I was drinking very heavily. Mm-hmm. And I was very depressed. Um, so my, you know, my perceptions and, and everything were very, were warped. And I continued to drink after getting married. I was searching for love, but I didn't know how to accept love oh, and receive love. Mm. Wow. Because I didn't love myself. Yes, that was my next question. Yeah, yeah. So after that, I went to um, counseling for a long time, and I was alcohol-free. I reached a, a kind of a, a place in my life where I was I was surviving. I was living externally what would look like a normal life, a happy life, but inside I was still very dead, and I was. Not clinically depressed, but definitely suffering from depression in general. I wasn't happy. Um, I was still very much in negative thinking patterns and living in a state of fear as well, where I was kind of, I still had those those feelings of I'm never going to be good enough and I've always got to prove myself and I'm not worthy of love. But it was kind of at a level where I could still cope with day-to-day life, whereas obviously, you know, prior to that with the, the alcohol abuse, um, I was struggling a lot. Now, there came a, a pivotal point, however, when you realized that you were, in fact, not broken. When and how did that happen? That happened two and a half years ago when I immigrated from New Zealand to uh, Northern Ireland, I started to write my memoir. I I actually left New Zealand because my marriage came to an end and I suddenly found myself as a a lone parent with a child under two years old, immigrating to a strange country. I hit a real low, you know, basically hit rock bottom. But because I had my daughter, I knew at some level, you know, that I I couldn't turn to alcohol. I couldn't Mm. turn to any of those support systems that I'd had in the past when I'd reached those low, low points. What I did was I actually turned to writing, which has been something that I've done uh, all my life, really, in the form of journals and things like that. But this was at a much deeper level. And I wrote my memoir. That was a really huge transformational time for me. Because as I wrote my memoir, and I was able to kind of step back a bit and write my story, being apart from it and reading it, I was able to see the patterns that I'd set because my memoir starts, if, you know, my story from early childhood right the way through. And I was able to see that I'd set these patterns at a very young age and how those patterns had then led to the anorexia, the alcohol addiction, depression, and everything like that. The core beliefs really is what I'm trying to say, the core beliefs that yes. I set of not being good enough and not being lovable and being broken, being somehow flawed, really. Not a complete and person. Not a complete person, yeah. So how did you, did you come to a place then where you were able to break free from the depression as well prior to, to you writing your memoir or was that all part of the process? It was all part of the process. And what happened as I was writing my memoir was I managed for the first time to to find a space between my chronic negative thinking, my fear and my pain and something else. So there was there was like a pause. And in that pause, I was able to step back and go, hold on, what if there's a me underneath all this? 
What if there's a me under the depression, under the pain, under the fear? That was the beginning of my turnaround. You know, when we are, um, when we're labeled, when we're labeled by doctors, when we're labeled by society and things like that as being depressed or alcoholic or damaged in some way, that becomes our identity. And we tend to, our thinking and everything tends to revolve around that. And that becomes what we believe we are. And it can be really difficult in the thick of that to break free and actually go, hang on a minute, there's a me underneath all that, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. I think that many therapists tell us when we go for therapy to write down our thoughts, to keep a journal, to possibly write a letter, even if you never give it to that person who has offended you, whether it was, like in your case, your mother or any other number of people. Did you receive that advice or did you just come up with the idea to write your memoir and it was indeed therapeutic in itself? I had been told in the past to write down my thoughts, which I did. Um, the memoir was, that was something that I came to myself and it was like a calling inside me. I just heard this, this voice inside me going, write, write. And I, (laughs) (laughs) I just had to write. And in about five months, I produced a book. What is, what's the name of your book? It's called Fear to Love, An Inner Journey Home. I started writing. Um, what I really realized when I was writing is that the issue was actually the thinking so in you know keeping a journal and writing down my thoughts and everything I was just perpetuating the cycle of the same thoughts interesting because you know when when we're suffering from depression and when we're stuck in those negative cycles the thinking is the same I mean that the actual individual thoughts will change uh-huh. but the actual cycle is the same and what for me, writing the book did was it it enabled me to step back and go, hold on a minute, this is just the same stuff. What if it's actually my thinking that's the problem? And <laughs> you know, and it sounds really simple, but when when you know when you're stuck in in the depths of the depression, it's not that simple because you can't just flick a switch and change your thinking. And you know, for me, and I'm sure for lots of other people, there are real external issues that are causing the pain you know it is more complicated than that but for me just realizing I could actually step back and go and have a space and allow a different thought to come through like a positive thought or something like that and just not take all that negative thinking so seriously do you feel you've been able to have you been able to bridge that gap now and that when you possibly have a bout of thinking negatively or in a depressed state that you can switch to positive state of thinking? Like, is that easy for you now or is it still a struggle? Do you know, I think what it is for me now is that I just don't take it so seriously. still have times when I have some negative thinking. You know, I'm human, we all do. Of course. But what I tend to do now is just look at it and go, there's some negative thinking and just carry on and know that just like a storm that will pass and the happy thinking will come back. So it is getting easier. 
It's getting much, much easier. And I often look at my my mind like a like the sky. And sometimes, you know, when a storm comes and those big clouds blow across, that's all my negative thinking. When there's a storm, we know that we don't have to go out there and stop the storm. We know that if we just leave it, it will do its thing and it will pass and then the sky will be blue again. And I've come to understand and see it's the same for me in my own life, in my own mental state, that if I leave it alone, it will pass. Now, you mentioned that you are an inspirational coach. And I'm sure that you're using a lot of your uh, own experiences to help people. In what capacity are you doing this? Are you doing this on a one-on-one? Are you doing this in like a group therapy kind of thing? Or, or what, what exactly do you do? I work with people one-on-one. I work via Skype and I also work in person here in Northern Ireland. I help to guide people to the inner wisdom that's within them. Because I think what a lot of people do, do and it's kind of what we're guided to do in society is we look for that we look outside ourselves for the answers but I believe that the ability to heal is always within you and I think if you can if you can trust that and you can learn to trust that and that's that's the tricky bit because often when we're you know in a state of depression and stuff we've lost trust of ourselves and our ability to make things right. So I help to guide people to that place within them where they can start to see their own resilience and their own inner wisdom. I like what you said there, that you need to learn how to trust your inner ability to heal yourself. Yes. So it's there. It's a matter of finding it and then trusting it when it speaks to us. Yes, and I really believe that it's there in every single one of us. Now about your book, share a little bit about what type of book it is. Is it strictly a memoir? Is it a self-help? Do you use it when you're when you're coaching? Just share about about your book. Sure. Different aspects. Of well, it is a memoir. It's not technically a self-help book, but it is divided into three parts, and it's divided into self-inquiry, surrender, and coming home. Self-inquiry was where my journey started. So that was when I basically looked in the mirror and went, who am I? Who is this Belinda? And the second part is the surrender, which is when I knew that I had to let go of all that I thought I was in order to find out who I truly was. And again, that's pretty much looking at at my own personal story. And then in the coming home, that's where I share the insights that I had. And in a way that I hope will help others to be able to use it in their own life. So I share, you know, the insight that I realized that all the painful experiences that had happened to me in the past didn't exist, yet they were still very much alive within me and how it was my thinking that was doing that. I also share some books that I worked through when I was going through my transformation. Um, One of the books is called The Missing Link by author Sydney Banks, and that book really goes into looking at the concept of thought and how our reality is created through our thinking. So that that's pretty much what it covers. Okay. And how long has it been out? Just over a year. Oh, okay. January right. 16, it came okay. out. Fear to love. Yes. You're going from one to the other. So it must cover a uh, a wide range of fears. It does. <laughs> yeah. It so does. Tell, tell us yeah. about a few of them. Like what would that cover? What type of fears? Fear is a, that's a huge topic. You know, we all <laughs> suffer from fear in some way or another. I would have to say that the, the main theme of fear in this book 
is really looking at fear of myself, fear of, of my reactions and to life around me, fear of failure, fear uh. of rejection, not being able to cope, fear of not being good enough, lack of trust. You know, I go back to that trust thing again. Do you give any types of solutions to these fears within your book? Like, is it evident through your story or is this mostly what you're doing when you are doing coaching sessions? It's really evident through the story in the book because I think in sharing my own story, people will be able to see how I work through it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a wee story. It's actually a video that I watched and I talk about it in my book, but I think it kind of sums up what it was that I saw when I wrote it, really the message that I'm trying to get across to people. And it was, um, it's called the dragon story. And basically in the video, it shows how people often go through life afraid of something outside of themselves or within. And it's symbolized in the video as the dragon. And in order to protect themselves, they construct stuff around them. So businesses, possessions, emotional boundaries, belief systems. But the fear of the dragon is so strong that the walls have to be built higher and higher. And then one day the people realize that there is no dragon and there never was. And all there was to fear were their own thoughts. And so the walls can come tumbling down. I think what we do is we have our beautiful, pure heart when we're born. And we add layers to it as we experience fear and pain. And we shut it further and further away behind more and more layers. And those layers become, you know, our external, our possessions, our belief systems, our goals that we set for ourselves. And in trying to kind of rush around externally, we lose touch with that inner essence of ourselves, our, our heart, really, and it becomes so shut down. And so if we can kind of strip away the layers and see that, it's actually our thinking that's creating our reality and get down under that. We can get in touch with our heart again. And then when we, when we do that, we can start living instead of just surviving. Explain to us what the difference is between living and surviving. I think we all know, but I'd yeah. like, seeing that you brought it up, I'd like you to, to share that. <clears throat> okay. Well, I think surviving, I get this picture of a hamster on a wheel, but really it's, it's when we lack being in touch with our, our innate wisdom and our creativity, that essence. You know, each one of us has that, that essence that makes us who we are, and it's so unique and so precious. Um, most of us, because of what happens to us in early childhood, because I believe, you know, that's where it all starts, uh, we set these core beliefs and we start shutting that down, that essence down, and we start molding ourselves into what we think the people in our life want. We might you know, it might be the experiences that we go through, you know, some children go through horrendously traumatic experiences, and obviously, they're going to shut their heart down, they have to, to survive. Yes. And we do that so much that we actually forget who we are. And we do, we survive. So externally, we've got it all together, and we're living a, a relatively normal life. But that we always feel like there's something lacking. And we think, okay, well, you know, I'll, I'll buy that new car, or I'll buy that new dress. I'll get my bank account to such and such and that will that will be, you know, what it is that's lacking that will fill that need, but it doesn't because that's just surviving and that's just going from one thing to the next. But when we can really live, I believe it's getting in touch with that that essence within us and actually realizing that our joy 
comes from inside us and that nothing externally can give us what it is that we're seeking because it's all, it's all inside us. Very good explanation. I appreciate that. Like I said, I think we all know what the difference is, but I like the way you explained it. And the bottom line is we don't have to just survive. No, we don't. And we're not here to survive. Exactly. I mean, that's what you said way in the beginning, you know, finding our inner self, finding our inner me, finding what makes us tick, finding what makes us happy and grabbing onto those things, making goals and, and aspiring to be everything that you know you can be, all those things that you touched on and casting aside the old fears in the past. Yes. Speaking of that, what part do you feel? And I ask a lot of my guests this question because most of my guests have had very negative experiences. Obviously, that's one of the reasons that brought them to this show and when they were in this situation. And and have you been able to forgive your mother? And if so, what did that entail? I have forgiven my mother. What that entailed for me was a deep understanding why she was like she was. Really, I suppose initially it came from my own self-inquiry. And it was when I was able to see that unless I had love in my heart, I couldn't give love. And it was then that I knew that my mother's actions were because she was hurting. She did what she did because she was hurting, because she didn't have love in her heart. Uh And that was an you know that was that started the forgiveness process and then i was also really fortunate in that i was able to talk to her um which i i actually did only a few months ago and she read my book <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly and i was thinking right and i did actually talk to her before i published it so um and explain to her what i put in it because i you know i I was yes. aware of what I was doing. Um, but I was able to talk to her and she was able, you know, she told me how she'd felt when I was a little girl and how she'd been jealous because my father had loved me and she hadn't felt like she was receiving the love that she was wanting in that marriage. Wow. Um, yeah, huge. So, I mean, uh, you know, for me as a little girl, I could never have understood that. But for her... I thought it was really brave, actually, <laughs> of her to actually tell me that. And so, again, you know, that points out that, you know, if you don't have love within you, you can't give love. It also brings another point out that I think so many families are lacking greatly in, and that is communication. Think of oh, all yeah. the pain that could have, you know, been avoided if, if your, you know, your mother had actually recognized that sooner and and tried to change it or or you were able to go to her and felt that you could communicate but it's difficult as a little girl but mostly as the adult if we could only see what's going on in our children you know little heads and what what they're experiencing and the signs that they're putting out and opening up those doors so that they feel comfortable enough to communicate that there are so mm. many hurting kids on so many different levels. And some of it is not even justified, which, you know, if, if the situations could be changed, um, you know, it wouldn't be justified. But we don't know that. You know, this is because they're not communicating. Do you, do you agree with that? I completely agree. I do. And I think it's so sad because, and it goes back to our own healing because we need to heal ourselves to truly be able to understand it. But, you know, those first 
few years of a child's life are just so, I mean, those, those children, are, they're just so sensitive and they just are like little sponges and they absorb everything and they, they tend to take it personally. And I do actually write about that quite a lot in my book, um, what children do, because I did quite a lot of research for it, into it, um, to understand myself and, and also to, you know, try and understand my mother. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but I think you're so right. It's communication. But it starts, I think, with communication with yourself, because if we can fully understand ourselves, we're going to be in so much of a stronger position to be able to understand our children. Very excellent point as well. And on that note, why don't you conclude or summarize um, what you've shared today and if there's any call to action that you have for your for your listeners? I think the final thing that I would, I'd like to say is that, you know, to whoever's listening, just remember, you know, what an amazing, beautiful person you are and trust yourself because everything that you're searching for is inside you. Um, in terms of call to action, I mean, I have a, I have a website. And if anyone wants to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Um, and if not, I hope you get something from this. And, yeah, just sending lots of love to everyone. <laughs> All the way from Ireland. And All the way from Ireland. Beautiful, beautiful country. What's your weather like there today? <laughs> Is Very it <laughs> Irish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we won't go there. We don't want to depress no. anybody. You know? <laughs> Okay, well, thank you so much, Belinda. I really appreciate uh, some of the, actually, some of the depths that you took us to today. Talking about some of the rawness, you know, the anorexia, the lack of love, the fears. I mean, these are all things that so many people deal with. And we never know how our story is going to affect other people even if it's only one person it's it's just makes us feel so much better to know that through our pain we were able to to give somebody else hope and so i thank you belinda trust that many people will be connecting with you and i thank you thank you so much carol and bye-bye okay bye-bye thank you for listening to never ever give up hope featuring carol graham Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.